Right, you can meet Audrey and Matthew down here. While you're, while you're waiting, you can open up to the book of Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. Uh, I do want to say this. I want to make sure that we say uh, thank you to our band. Uh, if you guys would, give them a hand. They do a great job for us every week. Really, really thankful for, for them and all their hard work. Uh, and then also, if you're wondering why my kid was making all that commotion earlier as Ms. Morrow brought her down the aisle, it's because, you know, every parent leaves their kid who can't walk right at the edge of the steps. No big deal. No, no big deal. So, <laughs> winning. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you found her. She... <laughs> Apparently, I have three children. Oh, oh man. All right. Exodus uh, chapter 2. Uh, we're going to pick it up in verse uh, 11. All right. And this is what the Word of God says It says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and she, birthed, and she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you uh, speak to us today through your word and through this text. I pray uh, that, that, Father, that that those of us in here who, who much like Moses... Uh, wrestle with control issues where we try to, to take matters into our own hands and we, we try to do things on our own time, our own schedule away from you, that today you would convict us of those things and you would show us our need for you, Father, and show us our need to, to be people of dependent prayerfulness and to, to trust you and to lean on you and not our own understanding. Uh, Father, I pray uh, for those that are maybe just in a difficult season of life, that they would see that this text is such an encouragement to us, that you are a God who hears, you are a God who sees, you are a God who knows. And finally, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that today, that as the gospel is preached and proclaimed, that you would save, that you would change hearts today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. I want to say thanks to Joe for... For preaching last week, he did a good job, and he he preached on um, Exodus chapter two. 
uh, and, and he talks specifically about the boundlessness of God, that God was gracious in saving and protecting Moses, that God was gracious to his people by continuing to remember the promise that he made back in the garden to save his people through the seed of a woman. Right? And we see that as all these babies, right? these, these boys, the seeds of women are being thrown into the Nile that God then takes Moses' mother who makes for him an ark, much like the ark that saved Noah from watery destruction. And God uses that once again to rescue and to redeem his people. Joe talked about how God is gracious to you and me by sending Jesus. That Moses wasn't the redeemer, but he's pointing us to the greatest redemption of all that comes through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so because of the grace that God has shown to us through Jesus, God then calls us to show that grace to others. I thought Joe did a great job emphasizing the fact that we've been people of grace or we're saved by grace, and so therefore we show that grace to others. Now, in the intro to his book, The Real Win, Matt Carter and Colt McCoy, in a, in a, title, in a chapter entitled, What You Care About Most, they spend the whole chapter talking about the sin of idolatry. And what they do is they identify four idols that are at the heart of most of our sinfulness, okay? And those four idols are power, control, comfort, and approval. And every one of us in this room, we, we wrestle with all four of those idols at different points in our lives, and it's a really intriguing chapter because as you read it, it helps us identify kind of what is behind the sinful actions in our lives. That usually those sinful actions have a root cause and usually you can tie it back in to one of these four idols. And so today, just for purposes of our text, I want to talk about the idol of control. The authors say this about the idol of control. When people worship this idol, it's like saying I'm only content and happy and at peace if I'm able to get mastery over a certain area in my life or if things are occurring according to my plans or my desires. And then they give us a few questions to ask ourselves to see if we're the kind of people that struggle with the idol of control. So they say this, if things don't go as planned or expected, you experience fear, anger, or anxiety in your heart. Any of my other control freaks out there say amen to that? That's me, right? I got a certain way it's supposed to go, baby. And if it doesn't go that way, I'm in total meltdown, right? I'm supposed to have 200 in here. And when I have 50 on a Sunday morning, it's over for me the rest of the day, okay? Mariah knows, just don't even talk to him. If you have a set schedule in your mind, but somebody deviates from your schedule, you feel frustrated and stressed out. Control freaks, anybody? Hello? Mariah won't tell me what time we're leaving anymore, right? Because if she says 9.30 and we're not walking out the door at 9.15, there's going to be problems in the marriage, right? Because I'm going to start pacing the house and I don't need any reason to get torqued up, okay? Already there, live there. All right, here's a good one. Thank you. When your kid has a school project, you do it for them. Yeah, I know some of y'all, Right? Yeah, that's right. I've taken my kid's school project before and walked around and went, oh yeah, their parents did that. No doubt. There ain't no way your five-year-old did. No, they did it. Okay? For you as a parent, if something threatens the future of your kids, you feel like you are unraveling. Right? Because it's not about the kids. It's about you. Right? It's a struggle for you to let anyone lead except for yourself. 
And finally, a lack of organization causes an unhealthy amount of fear, anger, or anxiety. Notice how it all keeps going back to those three things, right? Now, now this is all important because much like us, Moses is going to be dealing with the idol of control in this passage of Scripture. So what we see is this. Moses' motivation is going to be right, but Moses is going to do things on his time, and he's going to do it his way without the leading of God. Okay? So as we look at the start of verse 11, what we know is this. Forty years have passed since Moses has been pulled up out of the water, right? We know that because in Acts chapter 7, verse 23, Stephen, right before he is killed, says this about Moses. He says, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So look with me, if you will, in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their, their burdens. Now, real quick, that word looked on in the Hebrew, or you can even go into the Greek Septuagint, it means the same thing. It means to look on with compassion or feeling or empathy. So Moses is going out to look at his people and he's got concern and care uh, in his heart for his people. Is That's what it means. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. All right? So he's out. He's surveying. He, he's looking at his people. And what's going on is this. is Moses has come to a point in his life where he has to decide, is he going to identify with God's people? Or is he going to identify with the foreign nation that raised him? Now Moses would have been educated in the way of the Egyptians. Right? Once again, in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 22, Stephen tells us that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and in his deeds, right? Which that's going to become very, very useful for Moses later on in his life, that he was mighty in words and deeds, okay? So, so see the hand of God in that. But listen, the thing about Moses is that he was highly educated, he knows a lot about a lot of things, and he's out seeing his people, and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, which, that's a common occurrence, right? We've already read that. that this is just commonplace in that society. And Moses' formal education would have taught him that that was perfectly fine, and that was just normal for that to happen. History shows us that the Egyptians educated their elite class to despise the working class. So if you had soft hands and lots of lotion, you hated people that had calloused hands. And you were, caught, you were taught to look down on them. They wanted them to see people as subhuman that worked for a living. Many ancient texts have been found that encouraged the elite to treat slaves as lower than donkeys. And some texts even say to treat them as the living dead. So, so for Moses, to, like, he's been educated. That, that's how he was taught. And so he's out. He sees this scene unfolding. And so he does this. He makes a choice to stand with his people and to separate himself from Egypt. The book of Hebrews, Jay read it this morning, chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, said, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So it's at that moment Moses says, I'm going to identify with God and his people, and he's going to make a break with the Egyptians. And so he looks to his left, looks to his right, and y'all know when you do that, you're usually up to no good, right? 
about two months back, okay, I had to take Lucy to her therapy appointment, and Ellie is at the house with a certain neighbor kid, <clears throat> Cash, and um, <laughs> they were in the backyard because mama's house was clean, and I said, don't come in the house, okay? Here's Lincoln's monitor, okay? Again, parent of the year. Um, here's the monitor, all right? If he gets to screaming, you, you know how to get a hold of me, okay? So I go to therapy, I'm sitting there, and, and Cameron's there, right? We're talking, and I'm like, watch this, and so I turn the house camera on. All of a sudden, I see the back door open, Two heads puffing. Now, they didn't go in the house, okay? Good kids, but they both looked in, looked to their left, looked to their right, because they were up to no good. They were testing the waters a little bit, all right? This is what Moses does. He looks both ways, and then he kills the Egyptian, and then he hides him in the dirt, hoping nobody will see it. So Moses chooses the covenant promises of God over the paganism of, of Egypt, And listen, brothers and sisters, as believers in Christ, we must make a similar choice. God has no patience with half-Christians. None. There's no middle ground when it comes to choosing to serve the Lord. Right? This is a theme that's repeated throughout the scriptures. What does Joshua say in Joshua 24, verse 15? Choose this day whom you will serve. Whether you'll serve the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorite in whose land you dwell But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Jesus himself in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And Jesus says, you cannot serve God in money. Matthew 12, 30, once again, Jesus speaking, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So whose will you be? I mean, the choice is before you every day, Right? You have to take sides. There's no gray. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral territory. You can't love the world and love the Lord. It doesn't work that way. You can't be a worldling and a child of God. You can't be an Egyptian and an Israelite. It boils down to this. Will you be the center of your life story? Or will you allow the Lord God to be the center of your life story? See, Moses makes his choice. And he makes a break with Egypt. But listen to me, in making a break with Egypt, he does it his way, not God's way. Moses murders a man. There's no way around what Moses did. He murders a man. Like like as we're going to see as Moses grows up, he's got a bit of a temper and it's going to get him in trouble all the time. And Moses wasn't acting in self-defense here. This was not a just war situation. Two things that the Bible allows for. Moses straight up killed a guy. And here's the thing. Did Moses have to? No. I mean, Moses is a prince of Egypt. All he had to do was say, hey, cowboy, why don't you just cut that out right now? Right? I'm part of the elite class. You're not. Leave that guy alone. But Moses didn't do that. Instead, he takes matters into his own hands. He chooses to fight the Lord's battles with the world's weapons. And what happens is, is yes, he severs himself from Pharaoh's household. But look at verse 13. He even antagonized the very people that he's trying to save. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian 
and he sat down by a well. So the next day, Moses comes back down again. I mean, why not? He just killed this Egyptian. His people are going to love him, right? They, he's their guy. He's on their side. So why not come down? He sees two guys fighting. He's thinking, hey, I'm going to intervene right here. They love me. Remember, I killed that guy for him. They love me. And so Moses steps in, and apparently some sort of decision had come to, to who was in the wrong. Because it says he says to the man in the wrong, hey, wh- why are you hitting your companion? And instead of that guy going, oh, Moses, Thank you. We love you. That guy's like, man, who are you to talk to me like that? I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, all I'm doing is hitting this guy. I didn't kill him like you did. Huh? Huh? Who's got the high ground there, Moses? You might as well come off your high horse a little bit. You can't judge me. See, as far as God is concerned, no one had given Moses authority over Israel yet. Philip Ryken puts it this way, Moses was operating as a self-appointed savior, taking it upon himself to lead Israel out of Egypt, and the Israelites at this point wanted no part of it. See, by taking matters into his own hands, that control idol comes out. Moses is trying to be God. Remember, we, we live lives one of two, our lives one of two ways. You either trust God, or you're trying to be God. That's how it works. See, people who struggle with control, right, notice that kept coming up, are always going to struggle with fear, anxiety, or anger. One of those three things, right? So you're going to struggle with anxiety because it's not going the way that you want it to, and so because it's not going the way you want it to, you're out of control, and you're just like, ah, right? And you're, you're torqued up and worked up about it. Or you're angry because it's not going the way you want it to, and so you get mad, and you're like, if I could just get mad and, and take control of the situation, then I can make people do what I want them to do. So, so I'm going to give you some free advice right here. Everybody ready for this? Okay, ready? This is free. You're not God. So you should probably just go ahead and take that weight off your shoulders, please. You can't control anything. And as terrifying as that might sound, it's one of the greatest news flashes in the history of mankind. You can't control a thing, but God can. And see, Moses hasn't got that yet. Moses thinks he's in charge, that he's going to step in, he's going to do it his way. And because of that, Moses is driven into the wilderness of Midian. Look at verse 16. It says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs, um, filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Raoul, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah and she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses heads out to the wilderness of Midian. Now, the Midianites were just nomads who wandered around the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, That's the land of Canaan. That was all part of the, the areas that God had promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And so we here we find that, that the Lord is worshipped freely. And the reason we say that is because in verse 16, it talks about the priest of Midian, right? Which is going to find out is Jethro, who becomes Moses' father-in-law. In chapter 18 of Exodus, we're going to see that this is confirmation. That yes, he freely worshipped the Lord God. 
And Moses shows up, he sits at a well, which again, they're being deliberate here. That's echoing the story of Jacob and Isaac and how they met their wives by sitting at a well. And he sees the daughters of Midian, and in verse 17, we see some trouble. So they're out watering the flocks, a group of shepherds show up, and they try to drive these women away. Now scholars will tell you, we don't know how much time has passed since Moses has left and he's arrived at Midian, but something has changed in Moses since Egypt to this point. See, Moses is a compassionate man. We know that. And again, you're going to see that in his story over and over again, is that he wants to fight for those who have no rights. And we see that in the way he protects these women. But look what else has happened. He's learned his lesson. Because by the time he gets here, does he kill the shepherds? No, it doesn't allude to that at all. Now, he may have thrown hands, okay? I don't know what he did. Jiu-jitsu, something. He may have done something. But he doesn't take matters into his own hands, and he kills them. Instead, he runs them off. And then look what happens. He waters the flocks for these women. In verse 19, the women say he also gave them something to drink. Folks, in the ancient world, that didn't happen, right? You were just like a redneck, right? You went in there and fought and sat down and, give me my tea, woman! Like, men didn't serve women. And so you see the kindness of Moses. You see that something's changed in Moses. He's no longer Moses, the prince of Egypt. He's Moses, the servant, who's now been driven into the wilderness. And if you notice in verse 19, the girls come home. They're all abuzz about this Egyptian who's really a Hebrew, right? And the father's like, hey, man, where is this guy? Why didn't you bring him home? He's probably hungry. Let's feed him. Let's talk to this guy, right? He's thinking, marry one of my daughters. Come on. Moses comes, and then we are told he's given a wife, and he has a son, and he names him Gershom, which says, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. So here's the point that Moses is making. He's not making a point that he's away from home, but that he's actually come home, right? Even though he was born in Egypt, he's made the break. Egypt is now the foreign land, and Moses is now at home where he's supposed to be. And it says that he's now content to stay in Midian, to stay in the wilderness. You know, there's this theme that runs throughout the scriptures, and that's the idea of the wilderness as a place where people go to meet God. In Genesis 28, Jacob is in the wilderness, and what does he see? The stairway to heaven. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah is in the wilderness, and it's there that he hears the still, small voice of God. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist is out in the wilderness preaching repentance. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus in the wilderness does battle with Satan, and he succeeds where our first parents, Adam and Eve, failed in Genesis chapter 3. See, as Americans, we often see the wilderness as a bad place. And what we need to do is change our mindset to stop seeing the wilderness as difficulty and as something to be fixed and as something to be repaired because it's oftentimes in the wilderness that you and I see the compassion and the care of God in our lives. See, see Moses is going to see that. So, So Moses has acted on his own. He's acted in his own power. He murdered a man. And now guess what? He's going to wait another 40 years until God is going to use him again. Stephen tells us again in Acts chapter 7, verse 30, Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. See, there's a sequence that happens in Moses' life. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the desert, and 40 years leading Israel through the wilderness. Jim Boyce says this, Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning something, 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing. 
and 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. See, it's in the wilderness where there's a shift from he makes the rules, he's the boss, he tells me what to do, he loves me, he is for me, and I love him back. See, Moses had the right intentions, folks, but he acted independently and he trusted in his own self-reliance with the logic of the world. And so God sent him into the wilderness to learn the hard way to trust the Lord with all of his heart and to stop leaning on his own understanding. And honestly, that may be where some of you are today. Maybe you can look at your life and you can see areas where you're such a control freak and you're trying to take control in everything you do and it's not working out. And maybe God has led you to a spot where you're in the wilderness. And maybe he's led you there because he's trying to teach you to be the kind of person that is a person of dependent prayerfulness, that they're patiently resting on the Lord and on his timing, not continuing to try to act on your own strength, but crying out to the Lord whose arm is not so short that he can't save you. See, it's in the wilderness where God teaches us about our smallness and his bigness, our weakness and his strength, our sin and his grace. And see the grace of God which he lavishes on Moses? He's, he's in the run. Why? He's on the run. Why? Because he took matters into his own hands. But yet God still provides a wife, a child, and a home. And for the next 40 years, Moses will shepherd sheep, all in preparation to shepherd a nation. But the last thing I want to point to you is that God seems to be nowhere in these first two chapters of, of Exodus, Right? I mean, there's been a passing reference to him with the midwives who feared God. But outside of that, we've not seen God actively working in the book of Exodus yet. We know he's in the background. We've talked about that. But we haven't seen him active yet. So look at verse 23. It says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knows. God knew. So Pharaoh dies, a new king takes his place, but nothing at all changes for the children of Israel. And so it says they begin to groan and to cry out for help. And notice what it says, that their cries for rescue Go up to God. And it says that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. The covenant that if you remember, God said, I will be faithful to fulfill. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I love that. Right? There's three active verbs in there. God hears, God saw, and God knew. God knows the cries of his people. See, in the middle of your trials, these verses right here ought to be a warm blanket for you. That God hears, God saw, and God knows. And listen to me. When it says God remembers, it's not like all of a sudden he went, oh, man, I forgot to set a reminder on my phone. Dead coming. That's not what it means in the Bible. Anytime it says God remembers, it means that he uh, is bringing something to mind in such a way that it's a prelude to action. 
that God is about to work, that God is about to flex. And what you're about to see in the next several chapters of Exodus is that God is about to do something amazing. God is fixing to show his power to the children of Israel and to Egypt. So so look at it this way. We haven't seen much of, of God working in the foreground. He's been in the background, but look at this. He's working to bring all this together. So the brutality of Pharaoh, the courage of the midwives, the bravery of Moses' mom and sister, the compassion of Pharaoh's daughter, the royal education in the pagan court of the king, even the murderous action of Moses and 40 years of being humbled in the desert. All of this is God working things for good in order to prepare for the people a suitable savior. See, this is exactly how he continues to keep his covenant with you and I. He continues to keep his covenant with the church. And he doesn't do that through fixing all of our problems, does he? Now, now he is faithful at times when we cry out. He will intervene. He will heal. He will step in. But that's not how he always works. The heart of his covenant promise to us is not to fix our problems, but to provide a perfect deliverer. It's not to give us a solution, but to give us a savior. He prepared Moses for Israel, and he prepared Jesus for you. You're groaning, and you're crying out in your trials, right? We've all been there, right? Where's God? What's he doing? Why can't I see what's going on? Does he even hear me? Does he see? Does he know? This verse right here tells us that you can be sure that he hears, that he sees, and he knows. And the reason you can be sure is because of the cross. That Jesus came to deliver you from your sins that Jesus can strengthen you in your sorrows, and one day Jesus will return to deliver you forever from all of your suffering and from all of your pain. God has kept his covenant with you, and he's provided Jesus Christ. He's proven that he's faithful to his promises. And so listen, you can cry out to him no matter where you're at. You can strengthen your faith with a glance at the cross and the empty tomb. And you can lift your eyes to the throne room of heaven and see who sits there. And it's your Savior, Jesus, who God has provided and prepared to deliver you. So if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. Listen, I I don't know where you're at this morning. I, I do know that if you're anything like me, we do have a lot of control freaks in the room. And there's a whole lot of us that we're trying to control things in our lives. We're trying to do things our way apart from the timing and the working of the Lord. And if you're honest, it's not worked out the way you've wanted it to. And so maybe God's led you to a place. Maybe he's taken you to the wilderness. My advice for you would be this. Don't fight him. Don't fight him. It's in the wilderness where God says, hey, you don't have control, but I do. Trust me. It's in the wilderness where he reminds us of his bigness and our smallness, of our sin and his grace. And so today, maybe that's all you need to do is say, Father, I, I, I repent, forgive me for this idol of control that I have, and turn around and lay that down and give it back to him. Maybe some of you are just in here today and you say, man, I'm in a difficult spot. My trials, my, my, my difficulty has been so much, and I don't know if God uh, is even listening or if he cares I pray today that as we read those verses that God hears, God sees, and God knows that he has not forgotten you. And that all you have to do is take a glance at the cross to see that he loves you and that he is for you. And I pray today that you would be strengthened in your faith to remember that. 
And then finally, maybe you just don't know Jesus. And today, as the gospel's been uh, presented, I pray that, that the Lord has opened your heart and your eyes to see your need of a Savior and that you would not leave here today without telling a friend or coming and talking to me and just saying, hey, I need Jesus. So, Father, we love you and we thank you for all you've given us. Thank you for how you are absolutely in control of everything. Father, even when we can't see it, behind the scenes, you are always working for our good and your glory. Thank you that we see that in the book of Exodus, that although things look dark and bleak, when we get to verse 23, we see that you remember and that you are about to act in such a way that, Father, people will remember, that people will see how great our God is. I thank you for what you've done for us. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that because of the cross, you proved to us that you are for us and not against us. And I pray today that we be strengthened in remembering that, remembering what Jesus did for us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would, please stand.